what I want to do today, instead of jumping into Jeremiah, I want to do a message on Psalm 111. I thought it would be good as a calibration at the end of the year as we start uh, we close the chapter on 2019 and we start 2020. Again, if your kids want, you can dismiss your kids now. Take them back there with Tammy and the team. They're ready to, to receive you. Uh, how many of you do New Year's resolutions? Real high so I can see. I just see some kind of sheepish. I do it. Um, how many of you who raised your hand with any of those? Some of you. Good, good. How many of you actually write them down? The power, you know, that's a high hand back there. Writing is a powerful thing. How many don't do them, don't want to do them, have no interest in doing them? All the godly people, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's whatever you want to do. Um, Cindy has this reminded me the last couple of days, maybe, maybe almost a couple weeks, this is the, a new decade is starting. And she's really excited about this new decade, 2020. And I'm going, no, some people a long time ago decided about revolutions and rotations, and they put something down on a piece of paper, and they said, this is a calendar, and it's just another day in my book. I mean, that tells you a lot about me. Uh, but for some people, New Year's Eve is really important. How many of you stay up and watch the dumb ball go up? <laughs> yeah, you're proud of that too, aren't you? Yeah, God bless you. I mean, how many of you have gone to New York and done it in New York? How many of you want to do that? The bucket list, I'll pray for your sanity. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's interesting how these things come and go. Now, on the other side, uh, to defend Cindy's uh, view, birthdays, anniversaries, um, Christmas, Easter, these are important dates that we put on a calendar. And those dates are there as a reminder. Why are we doing this thing? Um, if you have children, it doesn't take much reminding to know a birthday is coming. If you are married, it doesn't take much reminding to know an anniversary is around the corner, perhaps, or maybe a big anniversary, like a 10th or a 20th or a 40th or a 60th, and those are big, important dates. Dates are important in the Bible. They're important in human experience. Uh, whether we call it a new decade or a new year or however you want to view it is, is fine. It's important. But what I want to look at Psalm 111 today is because Psalm 111 and 112 are essentially a unit. We're just going to look at briefly at Psalm 111. It's the choice to remember. It's that we must make an intentional, deliberate choice to remember things because we're prone to forget. Let's read Psalm 111 together, and uh, we'll come back to it again and again, but I want to read it as a unit of thought. And let me ask you to stand, and we can read through the screens. Remember, this is the Word of God, so let's pay attention. Let's read it well and read together. Psalm 111, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright in the assembly... Great are the works of the Lord. And his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to his people the power of his works and giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. 
They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Thanks. You can take your chair. So this is the hymn of praise, technically, and specifically it's praising God for His works. Um, his works are marvelous, they're gracious, they're wonderful, they're righteous, and the psalmist is writing a song, a hymn, for the Hebrew to understand this. Uh, 111 and 112 are probably a unit. They are an acrostic, meaning each strophe of the psalm, there are 10 verses in 111 and 10 verses in 112, um, and verses 1 through 8 each have two strophes, and each one begins with, in our vernacular, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dal, Chet, Vav. So each word, the first word in the, in the sentence, if you will, it's more of a strophe or a stanza, begins with an acrostic letter for memory. Now, there are 22 consonants in the Hebrew uh, alphabet, so what the, what the writer did in verse 9 and 10, he, he put three acrostic letters to, to get his, to his 22. And again, remember, we put these verse annotations in uh, for our benefit. They're not in the Hebrew text or the Greek text. We put those uh, verse, versified, we call it, language so we can find our way in the Bible. Um, Psalm 111 focused on the works of God, and Psalm 12 focused on we should bless Him and praise Him because of these works. So what I want to encourage you to do perhaps this week is as you review 111 on your own, look at 112 and see what the psalmist is doing in these companion songs. Praising God is an interesting concept, and a lot of words to me are innocuous when it comes to religious terms. They don't really mean anything anymore. They're harmless, but they don't mean much. And it, it's to our good, to our benefit to think, what does this actually mean? What's going on here? Um, praise is a choice or a decision. I'll never forget when I was memorizing Psalm 101 years ago, the declarative is, I will, I will, I will, I will. And it dawned on me, like struck, struck me, you know, just very surprisingly that He's making a choice. He's making a decision. I will praise God. I will sing of loving kindness and justice. I will do these things. And again, some of this stuff is so basic we miss it. So the declarative nature, I'm making a choice. I'm making a decision to praise God. And then, of course, we have to think about praising and what that means and what it, what it is and isn't. We'll talk about that a little bit. But we are incapable of praising God unless we are empowered by His grace. We are unable. It's useless for us to try to attribute some acclamation or recognition to God apart from understanding His grace in our life, apart from being part of the family of God, which this psalm is going to even accentuate. God's grace enables you and me to make the choice to praise. Apart from His act of grace in your life and mine, we cannot praise God. And again, praising God is, is kind of a strange notion. What does it mean to praise God? Which is one reason I want to, to look at this psalm. 
So for our study, Psalm 111, I'm going to break it into three parts. It's pretty easy. Verses 1 to 3 are the first, 4 to 9 are the second, and verse 10 stands alone. So we'll, we'll repeat that again. And essentially the psalmist is saying, if you understand his works, if you understand what he's done, his, the eternal nature of his covenant, then a wise person, a wise Christian, we'd say, is going to respond by praise. If you understand his works, you understand his eternal nature, the covenant promises he's made, it's, we might say it's a logical conclusion. It's a natural conclusion. You should praise God. The, the mirror of this is if we don't understand God's works, if we don't appreciate his eternal covenant promises, we're not going to be people who praise him. So it's incumbent upon the believer, it's incumbent in the nature of a song, so you remember those lyrics, you remember those words, you can sing it easily. Uh, you need to remember God's grace enables you to praise Him. Why do you want to praise Him? You've got to recount His works, you've got to understand His covenants, and as, as a response, you're going to go, wow, this is, this is who He is, and this is why I make the decision I choose to worship Him. Let me reread the first three verses. The first word in the Hebrew text is hallel, hallelujah. We render it praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. In the company of the upright and in the assembly, great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Uh, you, you Bible study folks will notice the word forever, depending on your English version, occurs a lot of times in this little psalm. It's a theme, the eternality of God is sown into this little song. Again, so we have the choice, the decision for the worshiper, I will do this thing. I will praise God. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Um, the, this idea of, you notice, the company of the upright and the assembly is an interesting comparison and contrast. Some see it as a... a the synonym, the same thing. I think it's different. I think uh, some of the better scholars than me, Derek Kidner, for example, talks about the company of the right, upright being like an intimate group of counselors, an intimate group of friends, close friends, the assembly being the larger congregation. In the Old Testament, Israel was often referred to as the congregation. It was a group of people that were gathered, and it was God's chosen people. So the psalmist, I believe, is talking about two groups here. In the company of the upright, let's call that his close circle of friends, his cabinet, his inner circle, as well as the larger group, the assembly. It's not anything hard and fast, but I think it's an important distinction of a subset of the larger group. Now, when we... When we talk about, it's interesting, we lived in Tennessee now, I think we're coming up on, is this our 11th or 12th year? 11th year. Um, you know, when we came here, of course, the Titans were, were really doing well, so of course it was easy to be a Titan fan. Oh, boy. You know, and then the Preds have done real well, so it's easy to be a Pred fan. And I'm, I'm uh, always uh, uh, amused and encouraged by these fans. I mean, some of these Preds and Titans fans are just fanatics. Uh, if you've not been to a Preds game, it's worth going just to enjoy the traffic on both sides of the game. Uh, you know, it's got to be one of the worst designs of a stadium I've ever been to in my life. It's like a bottleneck to get in and a bottleneck to get out, just, you know, which is probably why people drink so much at a game. You know, you're going to wait forever, have another drink. You know, I don't know. But it's an interesting thing to watch. You go through a lot to enjoy a game. It's not an enclosed stadium. 
But we have Fred's fans who like to be indoors. That makes more sense to me. Uh, you, have, you, you can't wait to go to a concert. A certain band comes to town. I've got a bunch of friends, and they have certain bands that they follow. I, I like certain kinds of music. And if they're coming to town, uh, for Cindy and me, it's venue. I'm not going to do the Bridgestone unless it's really something you know, like she wants to do. I like Third and Lindsley. I like Franklin Theater. I like you know the small ones I can get in and out of with my sanity in check. And... Um, you get excited about that. Uh, an artist is coming to town. Some of you know George Winston. And I mean, the minute I saw him coming to Franklin Theater, I said, honey, we're going to buy six tickets and take some people. She goes, fine, because it's easy in and out. It's just a piano. It's just him. I get excited about that. I look forward to that. Um, we could go on and on about this. My point simply is, what do you get excited about going and doing? I doubt Sunday morning church falls. I mean, it's just we're friends. We're friends. I doubt Sunday morning church falls in the same enthusiastic category of going to the Preds or a concert or, you know, a Titans loss or whatever, you know. I, I doubt it falls into the same category or a vacation or a trip. And I'm not saying coming to a local church should generate that. I'm simply asking the question of my own experience in my own life and working in a local church and being a pastor and knowing how our lives are busy and full. Are you excited about going to church? And I'm not asking that to trump up any, any response in you just to make the comparison and contrast. The psalmist is saying, this is a great thing to go into the assembly and into the larger congregation and praise God to make the choice to do that. That nomenclature is not even on most of our list. We don't use that language. Maybe you do. If you do, great for you. I'm trying to encourage you you as well as me, in our view of what it means to praise and worship God. Are we willing? Are we enthusiastic? Are we looking forward to the company of believers we're going to be with? Um, when Cindy and I did our mentoring groups for many years, the one thing, peel it all back, the one thing, I mean, we tried to get them in the Bible and in a theology book just so they would learn to think critically, not that you have to be a theologian, but you have to think critically about what you're reading in the Bible is my thesis. And beyond that, it was you need like-minded couples to walk through life. And when Cindy and I look back on our life, you may have heard everyone needs a Paul, a Barnabas, a Timothy, however you want to categorize it. Those are helpful things, but I, not that I'm isolated, but I need people that are going in the same direction as I am. When you're a young married couple, you need somebody who's four or five years ahead of you. Before you have kids, you need a friend who's got a couple of crumb grabbers. You know, before you hit the teen, the middle high school, middle school and teen years, you better have some friends that are a couple of years ahead of you going along with you. Uh, as your kids get older and start dating, driving cars, as they start uh, maybe talking about marriage, going to college, getting engaged, they're playing. You, it's incumbent to have wise people who are a few years ahead of you. And Cindy and I have leaned on other couples our entire almost 40 years of marriage now. We're always looking for like-minded people going in the right direction. Now, that works a couple of ways. You're also looking to encourage those younger than you. You also need those who are in the thick of it with you. But you need people that are down the line. Um, to me, that comes closer to understanding the experience of the congregation of Israel from Egyptian slavery to wilderness wandering to starting to inhabit the land. You need to be with like-minded Jewish believers for this to work. 
It's very difficult to do it as a Lone Ranger apart from those. And so all of us need that. Um, basically and specifically, when we think of these religious words and how we do this as a community of faith, the psalmist is saying, I, he's making two declarative choices. I will give thanks in the company. I will do these things. I will praise the Lord in the company of the upright and the assembly. And then he changes greater the works of God. So what am I going to praise? Well, let's start with what God's accomplished. Now, this word works, again, if you're a Bible study person, precept, uh, BSF, community Bible study, or if you're just a person that loves to study scripture, the word works is a fun rabbit trail. And let me just give you two categorizations, creation and salvation. In Psalm 19, verse 1, we read, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. We sang a song Sarah chose this morning about declaring the glory of God. We're declaring the glory of God for their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. How many of us love sunrises, sunsets, or starry nights? If you look on Instagram, it's so fun. I follow a number of you, and some of you follow me. When we have those, those flaming uh, sunsets, we're all on Instagram taking no-filter pictures, you know, taking little boomerang shots. But this is, Cindy and I look out of the front door of our house and watch the sunset and go, this is amazing. A friend of mine says, God's got his paintbrush out again tonight. When, when you look at something that's so spectacular, it's sort of a leveler. You'll, I mean, who doesn't love a beautiful sunrise or a beautiful sunset? Who doesn't love being out? Uh, maybe you're camping or traveling, and you're far away from city lights, and the stars are just like, boom. The sky's clear, and the stars are out, and you can pick out some constellations. Um, the creation, the expanse, declares the work of God's hand. Another way the word God's works are used are in saving and saving Israel in particular. Deuteronomy eleven thirteen, His signs and his works, which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all the land. The author, Moses, is telling of the story of Exodus saying, God worked signs and wonders to get you out of Egyptian slavery. He impacted, those, those signs and wonders were his hand at work. So the psalmist, to back up, is saying, what works do we look at? And that word is expansive in the way it's used and applied in the Old Testament. So the idea is, God's works are great. Do you stop and look? Do you attribute them to God? When my friend says, God has his paintbrush out tonight, colloquial way of saying, creation is wonderful. We can't even predict the weather very accurately, right? So with these great works of God, he continues, they are studied by all who delight in them. They are studied by all who delight in them. Um, Derek Kidner writes, they repay research. I love that. They repay research. When you study something and you find something, it's so exciting. Uh, Aletta Wald wrote a little book years ago called The Joy of Discovery. It was a little tiny primer on Bible study methodology. And her thesis was, when you get into this and you start seeing things you've never seen, that compels you to keep going. And that's true of any subject, perhaps. It's uh, uh, Paul is a dear friend of mine, and he's a videographer by, you know, it's his trade. He makes movies and films. And so I, when I want to see a film, I want to go with Paul, because I want Paul's eyes on things that I can't always see. Paul, why did they do this shot? 
What's going on with this color palette? Because when I look at a film, I'm looking at all kinds of things beyond the storyline. I like to watch a good movie many, I like to sleep through it mostly. I like to watch it many times and I see things, sometimes I see things that probably aren't there. But a lot of times I see, see things that I missed the first once or twice or three times. Cindy thinks I'm crazy. But they repay research. When I dig into something like that, or a text, or a book, right now I'm nibbling through this book on, um, on Luther, written by a guy named, um, it'll come to me in a minute, Oberman. It's a thick book, it's not an easy read, and I'll read a few pages and I go, boy, I'll never be this smart. And uh, I come back to it and nibble on it a few, and I, I see things each time that I didn't see before. For some of you in music, you hear something, and I never heard that before. So I love what he says there, repay research. He continues, this verse was chosen, well chosen, to grace the entrance of the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge. And so I went on my Google search engine, I couldn't find a good picture of it. But on both the old and new buildings, they have the King's English and it says, think about this, this is Cambridge. This is essentially their MIT, if you will. And it says, the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. Hear it again in King's English. The works of the Lord are great, sought out by all them that have pleasure therein. And this grace is the entry when you go into both the old laboratories and the new. And I, this was another rabbit hole I fell into uh, early this week for probably three hours, literally wasted so much time. The stuff that's come out of the Cambridge laboratories, uh, it, it, it would pale everything combined with MIT. Nobel laureates, all the, all the science and technology that came out of Cambridge. And interestingly, many of these men were Christians. Think about building a university today, a public university, and putting a verse of the Bible on there. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that, you know, powers that be at least kept it in 1974 when they relocated to the Cavendish laboratories. Be that as it may, he continues... Uh, while this verse may well be taken as God's charter for the scientist and the artist, verse 10 must be the partner, lest we profess to be wise and become fools like the men of Romans. A lesson, I think, for you and me, and this is nothing, you know, like I never thought of this before, but to me, uh, biblical Christianity is ongoing re-education. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you're may not, you're probably not going to learn a lot new, but it is ongoing re-education because we forget, and we need reminding. So the lesson that I gleaned from this, and you can always improve, careful study of God's works reveal His righteous and perfect nature. Careful study of God's works reveal His righteous and perfect nature. I have a young man, not so young anymore, he was a young man when we lived in Virginia, and he was one of these guys that made a 4-0 on his SAT and ACT, you know, perfect score, 16, whatever. And he made a perfect score on the MCAT, which I hear is pretty dang rare. And he double majored in pre-med and biological engineering. And if you've been around me for any length of time, you've heard me tell this story. I mean, this guy is so smart, he's scary. And um, so he came home, this was back in Virginia, from a college semester break, and I'm just peppering him with questions because, you know, I love his brain. I love his heart for the Lord. I'm so impressed that he can do all this. And I said, tell me about, are you experiencing any antagonism? And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, the pre-med, all of them are comparative anatomy evolutionists. They all think Christians are idiots and da 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 
And I said, um, so how do you handle that? And he was talking about it. And I said, well, what about you know, your biological engineering? And he goes, oh, most of them are believers. And I went, what? Now, when you're around a really, really smart person that maybe their EQ isn't very good, things as dumb questions. And that was a dumb question. That was a dumb thing to say to him. I said, are you, are you I mean, why? And he looked at me and said, Michael, think about it. If you're an engineering brain and looking at biology, you're not comparing, you're looking at design. And he goes, many of the biological engineers are Christian because they're not looking at it from, okay, all mammals have a set of lungs, all mammals have a set of kidneys, all mammals have fill in the blank, eyes, ears, nose, teeth. You're not looking at comparative, you're looking at design. And if you look at the engineering of the human body, it, you, you're a fool not to believe that there's an intelligent design of some kind. It didn't just happen. So, you know, I, I got a lesson, sort of, you know, a stupid question, but I got a really good answer. Um, the idea of careful study of God's works reveal his righteous and perfect nature. And I'm not saying the ontological argument that we dive into nature and science and art for finding God. What I'm saying is it is illustrative of God's creation. Another way of saying it, God's works confirm God's character. God's works confirm God's righteousness. Well, let's move on in the, in the psalm, verses 4 to 9. So we've established the psalmist saying, praise God for his works. Now he ups the ante and he introduces the covenant. And the, it's a little complicated here because he's not just talking about God's word. He's talking about his covenant to his people. Let me read verses 4 to 9 again to recalibrate us. He has made his wonders to be remembered, the Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear Him and will remember His covenant forever. He has made known to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of His hands are truth and justice. All His precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Three times in this group we have that eternality, that forever, forever, forever. Now the psalmist is talking about specific works of God and what he's done. And he's going to talk about history and forecasting a little bit of future. He is a God of his word in eternity past. He is and was. And he is and will be a God of his word in eternity future. His wonders are to be remembered. Um, so the Old Testament and New Testament reader, uh, they would know about, let's just talk about Passover and the Feast of Booths. These were something you were supposed to do every year. And uh, if they were faithfully obedient, if they were in the land where God put His name, there were a lot of, a lot of checks, they had boxes they had to check, then they could uh, con uh, convene Passover, this annual feast, and they were to remember these things. Remembrances require two things, teaching and participation. Teaching and participation. Just because you're being taught audibly today does not mean you're going to remember anything. If you, if you experience something, if you do something, you're more likely to retain it. And you all have been around years ago. The, the military was sort of formulated on the watch one, do one, teach one. If you went to a medical unit, unit with maybe no degree whatsoever, and you were in a MASH hospital. You watched it, you did it, you taught it. 
again and again and again. And it could be something as simple as how you prep uh, a table for a surgeon to come in and you know, uh, clean up a wound and stitch a soldier. You watched it, you did it, you taught it. And they had these systems. And when they introduced something new, it was the same way. Uh, med school, at one period of time, that was how your residency was. You watched it, you did it, and then you taught a younger resident. It's this, this idea, watch one do it. Participating is what cements it. You can watch somebody um, repair something on a YouTube video, but if you don't do it, you won't know how to do it. You'll have to go back to the YouTube video again and again and again. So recall the teaching, and then you participate. So when you look at the Passover, they taught the whole story of Exodus. They taught, taught the ten plagues, and then the Passover was the culmination. The family took a lamb, a blemish, unblemished male lamb or goat. They kept it for a period of time. They slit its neck at a period at twilight. They drained the blood. Can you imagine uh, Christmas traditions? We're going to kill a goat. We're going to bleed it. We're going to field dress it. We're going to have a barbecue. We're going to eat certain foods. And if you've not done a Seder, uh, we're talking about trying to pull one together for Stonebridge. I don't know how we'll do it for so many people, but we're, we're looking at doing a Seder for Stonebridge. You, you need to do a Seder, and there's you know, 10 different ways to do them. But you understand the teaching and participation, and the participation cements it into our minds, into children's minds as well. Um, God's grace is the means by which we're delivered, is what we're going to learn in these teachings and participation. Verses 5 and 6 remind us that it's the Lord who provided the food, the Lord who provided manna. And while we connect this food with the covenant in verse 5, let's go back to what's happening here. We've got Egyptian slavery, we've got Passover, we've got wilderness wandering, and then we have this heritage of nations we'll talk about in a moment. There's a lot of time covered in this little song. Remember when you were slaves in Egypt? Remember when you were in the wilderness for 40 years and God provided food for you every day, except one day a week, but he still provided. And remember then when you came into the land, you were to dispossess these nations. You could not have done any of this apart from God. You couldn't free yourself from slavery. You would have never survived in the wilderness. And you couldn't go up against innumerable enemies. Every one of these is teaching something they're participating in so they don't forget. And they can stand back and cover their mouths and go, wow, can you believe God did that? And the righteous, what we would call God-fearing Christian Jew, if we want to use those words, would know this better than we. Of course God did these things. We could have never done these things. None of this could be accomplished apart from God's grace. They wouldn't have stayed in slavery 400 years well, another innocuous word is this idea of fearing him. Fear God. Um, most of us have heard, you know, have reverence toward God or respect him. I submit those words don't help at all either. I mean, there's no respect in our culture today. We don't say yes, sir, and yes, ma'am anymore. You don't hold the door for another person. I was sitting there with a couple the other night. I was talking about, I held the door for a person. I'll just, I mean, we're friends, right? I'll get in trouble probably. I held the door for a woman. And she gave me a dirty look. And I wanted to say something, you know, unkind, but I didn't. I thought it. I wanted to say, you're welcome, you know. Uh, my daddy told me to hold the door, you know. And uh, on the other hand, I see a woman coming in with one of these, you know, things that uh, the child's this big, the stroller's this big. 
They're in cahoots with the SUVs, I'm telling you. Uh, and, and so I watched this woman with two kids in this, you know, moon unit, things that big, trying to navigate the doors of, you know, a store or whatever. And so, of course, I'm going to hold both doors for them, right? You're supposed to do that, right? Well, she was at least nice. She said, thank you. Um, why did I digress on this? My mind wanders. Um, there was a point here. Respect. Fear. Uh, these words don't mean anything anymore. Um, the idea of fear in the Old Testament is more terror than just being respectful. Now, don't go too far with that. Let me expand on it a little bit more. But the idea of having a fear toward God is a little more the Wizard of Oz than it is I'm being respectful by holding a door saying, yes, sir, no, ma'am, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. The term clearly indicates fear and drawing back in fear. Uh, let me add to it the word healthy respect, because we all know what that means, healthy respect for something. When um, we have a small group of friends that probably like you do the email a lot, and I have some guy friends that are, they've been friends for a long, long time, and they're all crazy, and um, we were together, and the, one of them is like a huge, he likes wood fires. He's got a fire pit and fireplaces, and he, so he burns more wood than anybody on the planet. You know the action about wood? It heats you up three times before you burn. Because you got to cut the tree, you got to you split, you got to you know, cut it down, section it, and then you got to stack it. I argue it heats you up four or five times before you burn it. Anyway, um, so it's a lot of work. Well, he had a tree go down in his yard in Virginia that I'm not exaggerating, it's probably a 120 year old oak tree. And he lives on the bottom of a hill in a creek bottom, and companies wanted like $5,400 just to cut it up, not to haul it away. And there was so much oak down after that hurricane, nobody wanted the wood. So uh, he being frugal, and uh, he decided he's going to leave it there and work, nibble away at it. Well, fast forward, um, one of us got into these. It's called a wood processing machine. It's not called a, called a wood cutter. It's a wood processing machine. And these people, largely in the Pennsylvania area for some reason, have got this idea. And you can see these boys who grew up with erector sets. And they designed these things with hydraulic pumps and cranes. And they can take a tree and, and just peel off the branches like taking the paper off a straw. And this hydraulic crane picks it up, drops it in the chute, pulls it in. This enormous chainsaw cuts it and drives it through a wedge in the four or six feet. I mean, it's, it's a guy thing to watch this at play. It's just like... This is amazing who came up with it. And then it goes up this big conveyor belt and drops the wood. Now, the only problem was the machine didn't stack the cord. That was a real fail. But anyway, um, this thing can do a, face, a full cord and a half of wood in like two minutes. It's ridiculous how much wood, a wood processing machine. So we're trading these videos, and we're one up, and look at the one I found. Look at the one I found. I found. Anyway, you know how these things go. And so at one point, I wrote one of my friends. I said, none of these guys have got any safety protection on. No hard hats, no welder's shield, no leather apron, no big gloves. They're not even contained like in a booth. Behind. They're running these hydraulics on these machines, and you know they're going to lose an eye or a limb or their life working these machines because they're guys. They're just stupid. <laughs> they're just stupid. They don't have a healthy respect for that machine. If you've ever been around a chainsaw, you better have a healthy respect for that tool because it can end your life very quickly. Now, that's a long, crazy story easily. Do you have a healthy respect for God? 
Do you have not a terror of him or being afraid of him, but as the language suggests, you take a little bit of a step back because you're talking to God. This was one of the reasons I am very critical of the Christian music that um, makes God to be your buddy, your chum. Your... Now, now, he calls us a friend. I'm not going to throw that one out. But I think we need to be cautious even saying, I'm a friend of God. He's my Savior. He's the Lord. He reigns eternally. He's enthroned in heaven above. He does works I can't even understand how. He's not my buddy. He's the God of the universe. We need a spiritually healthy respect toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that it makes us not approach him or fearful to approach him, but you calibrate before you walk in there, as it were, metaphorically, to talk to him, that you've got this kind of respect. The psalmist progresses in verse 7 and 9 that the word of God goes to the works of God let me read Alan Ross, who sums up this section far better than I can, very briefly. When God made the covenant with Israel, he included more than wonderful promises. He gave them the law, their obligation to the covenant. You hear what he just said? He makes a covenant, but he gives the law. This is, this is the if-then conditional covenant. This is the part you're going to do. Now, certainly there's unconditional covenants. We've talked about those, unilateral covenants. But what Ross is illustrating... This is the covenant, but you have your part to do. Now listen to how he, he expands on this. I love the way he says this. If all God's works are faithful and just, then what he demanded in the law is also trustworthy and upright. These laws and precepts were both forceful and pleasing to the believer. These laws and precepts were both, both forceful and pleasing. There's an account to this law. There's an obligation. This is serious business. But they're also pleasing. Since they revealed the faithfulness and righteousness of God, and they were not temporary or changeable, they're forever fixed. God's word is right. It is reliable and appropriate if the people wanted to live under God's continued gracious and mighty works. Verse 9 draws attention to perhaps the most important event of God's works, and that's when he introduces the word redemption. He had sent redemption to his people. Let there be no misunderstanding. God provides this redemption. He is the generator of it. He commands his covenant forever. Israel couldn't get themselves out of slavery. Israel couldn't have survived in the wanderness. Israel couldn't have dispossessed people groups as they went into the promised land apart from God's agency. No power in Egyptian slavery, no power to survive, were utterly defenseless. And as a result, the psalmist says, awesome is his name. Finally, verse 10, a wise believer fears and praises God. A wise believer fears and praises God. If you understand his works, you understand the eternal nature of his covenant promises and who he is and why he gave us this law, then the response is, I need to respond to this with fear and praise. Verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do His commandments. His praise endures forever. So we have this beautifully painted epic of time in these ten stanzas. Uh, of what He accomplishes with eternity is the overarching theme that God is eternal in nature and eternal in promise, eternally reliable. So a sober, wise, intelligent person would say, I need to fear God. 
I need to respond in praise. I would submit the reason we don't praise God the way we, I hate to use the word should or need to, but I'm going to, the way we should is we don't know our God the way we should. The, the more discovery you have on who he is, his character, his word, his eternality, his immutability, his love, his forgiveness, his compassion, the more you understand that and the more likely you are to worship and praise him the way he wants us to praise him. The final lesson, make the decision to praise God for his word and his works in your life. It's easy to paint the picture broad of Egypt and wilderness and covenant and dispossessing lands and taking a heritage that Israel would have is very different to look at your life. And we need to be careful here. We need to be careful not to attribute every good thing to God and every bad thing to you know, man's failures. God's bigger than our view sometimes, obviously. But what we can agree on is he's forgiven us. We can't agree on he loves you. We can't agree on the fact that he gives you again and again and again and again and again and again, right? We can't agree on the fact that you really can't make him mad. You can disfellowship, you can move away, you can live in sin, and you'll enjoy the fruit of that choice. I will as well. But when we look at what he's done for us as a congregation of believers, not this local church, but the congregation of believers, um, and then I think it's fair to say, you know, you got, are you married? Is your marriage functioning? Does your wife basically love you? Your husband basically love you? Have you been through a divorce? Have you recovered? Do you have friends around you who will carry you and walk with you? It hurts. It hurts a long time. Some people, it, they carry that wound all their life. If you'd lost someone you love. Those of you who've lost a child, uh, in my book, nothing worse. You're not supposed to bury your young. And, and God over time and through his people and through his word uh, can not make it right, but he can mend us. He can put us back together to the sense the scar will always be there. But I can live and I can live in faith. Um, if you got kids and grandkids and you didn't kill your children, you get grandchildren. Howard Hendricks said grandkids are your reward for not killing your teenager. Um, you know, if you get grandkids, then all's right with the world. I mean, whose grandkidlins aren't the most incredible people on the planet, right? I love the bumper sticker, have grandchildren first. Um, and if you live so long, you might have great-grandchildren. You got a job. You got a house. You got food in the pantry. You got a way to get back and forth to work. You got ability to give some money away to help people. You have a skill that you contribute to society. Healthcare, law, teaching, raising your kids. Are you doing something? Do you stand back long enough and say, God's given me. If Israel couldn't get out of Egypt, couldn't survive the wilderness, couldn't dispossess nations, who are you and I to think we could do anything apart from him? We're proud and hubris, uh, hubris if we think so. Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not not. Fog in a mirror. You were dead until he made alive. 